As I mentioned a moment ago, we have looked this week at the Apostles' Doctrine and how that, of course, has been part of the early church. But we've really never explained what the Apostles' Doctrine was. And so this morning for a few minutes I want to go back and I want to notice just for a while at least some things that I believe fall under this broader category of the apostolic doctrine. Now first of all, before we look at the specifics of this, I want to just talk to you in a little bit more of a philosophical way about this phrase, apostolic doctrine or the apostles' doctrine. You know, when you think about the early church, there were really two things that really, I think, glued the early church together. Number one was their love for Jesus Christ. And you know, really in reality, that is still the glue that ought to hold us together as well. Because if we all love Jesus Christ, then we're going to love one another, and there's going to be more peace and unity. There's going to be the bond of love and camaraderie within God's uh, church within the body of Jesus Christ. But of course, love isn't enough because love has to be founded upon something that is stable. It's not an emotion necessarily, it may include that, but it's got to be based upon something that never changes. And of course, God was wise. And so, what he did when he uh, brought forth the plan for the church, uh, not only sent his son so that we could understand what true love is also gave us His mind. He gave us His words. He gave us the Word that we call the Word of God. And of course within the Word of God we find the great messages both in the Old and the New Testament of those men of God and women of God who were directed and guided by the Holy Spirit. Peter says that those even of old were moved along by the Holy Spirit. Well, we find the same thing is true in the New Testament. The apostles were, of course, those who were discipled or they were learners of Jesus Christ. And Jesus taught them all things that they needed to know up until the time He would die. Now, after that, they continued to receive revelation through the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus had promised to them. In John chapter 14, verse 26, he says, I'm going to send you a comforter. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And by the way, that word comforter there is literally in the Greek parakaleo, which means to call to one's side. It's something that God would send through Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit would come and He would comfort them because their teacher, Jesus, was going away. He was going to go back to heaven. He was going to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would bring things to their remembrance. It would continue to reveal those doctrines and those precepts that the church of all time would give their lives to. And so the apostles then were guided into all truth by the Holy Spirit. And of course that then became the superstructure for the church. Not only was love now important in the church, but the apostles' doctrine as well. Now it says in Acts chapter 2 verse 42 that they continued steadfastly. And I want to talk about that word just for a moment because if you look that word up in the original language it means to hold tenaciously to. It is the idea of holding on to something and not letting it go. 
You know, if you were drowning today in the ocean and someone came by and he threw a life uh, lifeboat to you or a life uh, ring to you, you would hold on steadfastly to that. And until which time you reach the shore, you would not let go of your grip. You would hold on, as we sometimes say, for dear life. Well, that's exactly what the apostles were doing when they taught the church. The early church held on for dear spiritual life to their teaching. Why? Because their words were from the Holy Spirit, and their words were from the very mind of God. In fact, if you want to do a very interesting study, 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, the Apostle Paul speaks of how they had been given the mind of Christ. And he says that, you know, in reality, no man can know the mind of another man unless that man reveals his mind to, to you. The same is true with God. God, we cannot know his mind unless he chooses to reveal his mind to us. Now, it's very clear that God has not revealed all of his mind in the sense that uh, God is omniscient. And of course, all of the things that we know are limited when it comes to the great scope of God and his power and his uh, ability and his consciousness. But nonetheless, we have been given, as Peter would say, all things that pertain to life and godliness. So the things that God wants us to know, we have been told. And now this is important as well because really what we have here is we have several subjects or topics that could be discussed rolled in, up into one. One of the problems in the religious world from the time of the apostles on is what we might call continued revelation. Now, of course, we believe the apostles were inspired by God. We believe that they were guided by the Holy Spirit. But after that formative period, of the New Testament establishment and first century, there were other men who rose up speaking perverse things, as Paul warned, and they led disciples away claiming to have continued revelation. And you know, the same still goes on today. In fact, uh, even during the restoration movement era of time, there were men like Joseph Smith, who rose up and said, hey, I have a new revelation. God has given me some golden plates, and I'll go translate that, and that will then add to God's Word. Well, you know, the apostles were guided into all truth. And if it is all, then there is none more that we need look for. And, of course, that's what the early church understood. They recognized that what the apostles were giving was the truth, and they held on tenaciously to that. You know, in our study over the last few nights, we have noted that men often depart from God's way. And oftentimes, even movements that are maybe inherently good gradually are splintered because men depart from God's way. But you know, when we go back to the basics, when we go back to the Scripture, when we go back to the very mind of God, we can be assured to stay on that straight and narrow path. And so, what was the Apostles' Doctrine? Well, of course, the word doctrine simply means teaching. You know, there's a trend, or there was in the mid-1900s, to sort of try to separate gospel and doctrine. And some would say, well, you know, when we talk about the life of Jesus, that's a gospel, that's good news, but when we talk about doctrine, we're simply talking about the ordinance of worship and other things that the Apostles laid down. Well, by the way, those two terms are used interchangeably in the Scriptures, but nonetheless, the word doctrine simply means teaching. Jesus taught doctrine. 
In fact, the Sermon on the Mount, he taught many things that would apply to his kingdom. And of course, the apostles then, being guided into truth, came and taught other things as churches were established and as churches needed to hear what they then were taught. So when we're talking about the early church continuing tenaciously in the apostles' doctrine, it's not some mystical uh, set of rules or not some mystical set of information. It is simply the apostles' teaching. It's what they taught. It's what God had revealed to them through the Holy Spirit. I believe there are 10 things that we can at least identify quickly in the Apostles' Doctrine. And I want to just briefly discuss these things with you. We do not have time to develop each one of these things. They could be a series, I suppose, within themselves. But, you know, I really believe it starts with who Jesus was. The deity of Jesus was one of the 10 doctrines that we're going to notice very quickly this morning. And really, you know, the deity of Jesus goes all the way back, really, to the confession that we began this meeting with in Matthew chapter 16. Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, Peter there meant, when he looked at Jesus, he saw the attributes of deity. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. A son has the attributes of his family, of his father. Jesus had the attributes of of his father. And so then when the apostles came to him on one occasion in the book of John and said, show us the father, let us have a clear look at who God really is. And of course, no man can see God and really live because God is spirit. But nonetheless, Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. And so then Jesus is claiming He's saying, listen, I have the same characteristics as God the Father. Now, you know, that got Jesus into trouble, didn't it? In fact, in reality, that was really the charge that the Jews brought against Jesus at his crucifixion. They said, this man claims to be equal with God. He claims to be the Son of God. Well, that was blasphemy to the Jewish mind. They didn't understand and they refused to see the fact that Jesus proved that he was deity not only from the Old Testament Scriptures, but by the very works and miracles that He did through the power of the Holy Spirit. And what did they do? Well, they looked at the power that Jesus was manifesting, and they attributed it, for example, to Beelzebub, the prince of demons, or the devil. And of course, Jesus rebuked them quite harshly on that occasion. But the deity of Jesus was a non-negotiable. You know, John speaks of this both in his Gospel but also in his epistle as well. You know, John speaks of the Word. And the Word in the beginning uh, was with God, and the Word was God. Now, you know, there's such divine uh, difficulty, really, and, and wonderful depth in this particular verse. Because here John is taking us all the way back to the beginning. You know, if you read Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But have you ever wondered how God created the heavens and the earth? Well, He spoke them into existence, didn't He? But did He use words? Did He use English? Well, I don't know. We don't know all the particulars, but we do know that it was through Christ, Paul says in Colossians, that God created all things. Jesus was the Logos, the divine incarnate Word. He was the communicative tool, apparently, that God used, it's a great mystery, 
in order to speak the worlds into existence. And not only so, but it seems that Jesus today is still upholding the world as we know it. You see, no one who is not deity could do that. Jesus demonstrated over and over that he was deity come in the flesh. In fact, the old prophecy in Isaiah said that the virgin would bear a child and he would be Emmanuel, which is interpreted God with us. So the deity of Jesus, the deity of Jesus was quite important. Now, when we talk about the deity of Jesus, and I'm restraining myself from off on a tangent because we could talk all day, I suppose, about this. But Jesus was fully divine, but he was also fully human. He was the man God or God man. Now, I don't know how you explain that because we might understand someone who is physical that has divine attributes to some degree, but Jesus was both God and man. Well, how do we explain that? Well, I don't know how you explain that really, other than Mary, the virgin, gave birth to the child Jesus Christ. How do we explain that? I don't know. You see, there's a great mystery, and that's interesting because in the early church, and I don't mean the apostolic period, but I mean as you go on through uh, the time of even Constantine in the period of Nicaea in about 315 A.D., most of those early controversies in the early uh, history of the church revolved around who Jesus was. Many of them would say, well, Jesus was part man, part God, some combination, or he only appeared to be man, but he never was really flesh. And you know, John seems to be fighting that very idea in his epistles. He seems to be fighting this Gnostic idea, which was this dualism between flesh and spirit, when he says, any man who confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. You see, John was apparently dealing with heresy at that moment, which said, Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. Why? Because flesh is evil. No, flesh is not evil inherently, but it is evil if we do evil things with it. But nonetheless, Jesus was God. Not God the Father, not God the Holy Spirit, but He was deity, in other words. And that brings us, of course, into the great conundrum of the Godhead, what some people call the Trinity. How do we explain that? Most of the early church councils, most of the early church history, many writings, books and books, have been written to try to explain the fact that Jesus is God. Jesus is deity. But you know, John just flat out says it. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And before I leave this slide, John then goes on, that beautiful verse, and he says, and the Word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. I think the old King James says dwelt among us. That doesn't cut it. Tabernacled among us in a tent, a tent of flesh. You know, Paul talks about laying aside this tent of flesh at some point and going and being with the Lord. Jesus was in a body that suffered like we suffer. He was in a tent that was blown by the storms of life. He understood what we go through. In fact, Hebrews 4 says that because of that, He can be our high priest and we can approach God with the feelings of our infirmities with boldness. And so Jesus, though deity, was indeed humanity as well. Well, let's go on. The incarnation of Jesus. Jesus came in the flesh. And we've already referred to this, but there were some, as I mentioned, who said Jesus did not come in the flesh. 
because flesh is evil. And Jesus could not have come in the flesh if he's the Son of God because God cannot be manifested in flesh. Flesh and spirit are evil. Our flesh, rather, and spirit are separate, and flesh is evil. But John in 1 John 4, 2 says this, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit, and here he's speaking of, I believe, teachers, those who come uh, and teach doctrine. He says, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Now, of course, he's not saying that that's all one must confess to be of God. But in his particular context, he's fighting, he's arguing against some group, apparently, that was affecting the church that were arguing that Jesus had not come in the flesh. Now, what are the ramifications for Jesus not coming in the flesh? Well, first of all, you have no virgin birth. Second of all, you have no real ministry, do you? But even more importantly, you have no death and resurrection. Because if Jesus did not come in the flesh and he was only a mirage or some sort of a apparition, then Jesus did not shed his blood. And that's vital. Because the book of Hebrews makes it clear over and over, the body was prepared for Jesus so that he might become the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And if Jesus did not have flesh, then that means he didn't have blood. And if Jesus did not have blood, then that means he did not shed his blood for us. And if Jesus did not shed his blood for us, then that means we are, as Paul would say, yet in our sins. And it would mean that, of course, Jesus never rose from the dead as well. So John says, every spirit that does not confess that Jesus is come in the flesh is not of God, and this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming, and now already is in the world. Now again, it seems that what John is combating here is probably that doctrine called Gnosticism, that mysticism that would later find its fruition in the second and third centuries, but already something akin to that seems to have been creeping up in the church, and Paul probably deals with that same thing, by the way, in the book of Colossians, at least to some degree. The third thing, though, that was a non-negotiable, a major doctrine, a major apostolic teaching, was the body of Christ, the church, the one body of Jesus Christ. Now, you know, today, I think that concept is lost on us in this culture and perhaps in the Western world. It's changing, but typically when we think of the Western world, we think religiously of denominationalism. Denominationalism, where people are claiming to be part of various bodies or various groups. And you know, the concept of the one body is one that I think we need to understand. And let me just develop it just for a moment, and this probably will get us on a bit of a rabbit trail, but I think it's so important that I especially want the young folks to kind of understand this. You know, when you think of the church, the one body, and Paul spoke of that in Ephesians 4. He says, There is one body and one spirit, even as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. The unity of God's system here is being shown. But he speaks of the one body. Now here he's not speaking of the singular physical fleshly body of Jesus. Now it is true that Jesus had one singular fleshly body. In fact, had Jesus had two bodies... That wouldn't have looked very good and probably wouldn't have been survivable. You know, we have one body and we have one head on our body. And of course, if a creature is born with one head and several bodies, which I don't know if that happened or not, but if it were to happen, it would be a free nature. It could not survive. 
Now, if something also was born with one body and several heads, that would be a problem too, wouldn't it? But you see, Jesus was a human and had one head and one body. But Jesus' spiritual body, the church, also has one body and one head, and that head is Jesus Christ. Now, in the denominational world, the picture that we get of the one body is that of a universal body. Those in the religious world say, well, you know, Jesus has one universal body, and that is true. Jesus does have one universal body. By that, we mean all of those who have been faithful in every age and race from the time the church was established on down to the present time, whether here or in Africa or Korea or wherever. And so they'll say, Jesus has one body. It's a universal body that was spoken of in Matthew 16 when he said, I'll build my church. And I agree with that thus far. But then they say within that body are these other little bodies, we call them denominations, and those little churches or little groups, again, make up the universal body of Christ. Now the problem with that is that when you study religious division, and when you study uh, the, the body of, of denomination out there, you will find that all of these groups teach different doctrines, they look to different places for their headquarters. They look to different men or women for their marching orders. And so you see, really in reality, they can't be all in agreement and they cannot be in unity with the head, Jesus Christ. And so obviously that picture of the big universal body with denominations, Methodist, Baptist, Church of Christ, so-called, and uh, you know, Christian and all those in it cannot be the right paradigm. So what is the right picture? Well, when Jesus promised to build his church, it was a universal big circle body. It was going to include all of those, of course, who were baptized for the remission of their sins, to which the Lord would add daily those that were being saved. But now all of those folks were in all times and places, but they composed congregations of the Lord's body. They were not part of separate bodies, but they composed congregations of the Lord's body, all worshiping the same, all looking to the same head, all having unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, all believing the basic tenets of what Jesus and the apostles taught. And they all looked to Jesus as the head. And so when we look at the one body concept, the scriptural view is that we have the universal body of Christ that is consistent of all those of all ages who are baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. And then in any local area, those folks will come together, they will worship together, they will fellowship together, and thus you have the congregation at Whispering Pines. Thus you have the congregation at 21st Street. Thus you have the congregation in Korea. Thus you have the congregation in uh, Tanzania. And so then you see, there's, there's uniformity. It's all the same body. It's all in looking to the head, getting the same direction. And yet, there's different little congregations. But the world would view the body of Christ as different denominations. That certainly is not a scriptural tone. And you know, the early church was uh, non-negotiable on the fact that there was one church, one body. You know, even to the Corinthians, Paul argued that, listen, you've got divisions among you. Some are saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I am of Apollos, I'm of Christ. 
He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? And he goes on to argue that there is unity in the one body, the one church. Yes, there is only one church, and we must make for sure we're part of that because the one church is composed of those who lend themselves to the apostles' doctrine. Well, we've noted this throughout our study, but how did folks get into that one church? One of the main doctrines, number five, in the Lord's church was baptism for the remission of sins. Now, you know, as time went on, as we noted last night, other forms, other modes, other purposes of baptism began to spring up. Infants began to be baptized when that's never in the New Testament. People began to be baptized by sprinkling or by pouring water or as one church heard about with a little aerosol can of hairspray water. You know, that was never the pattern of the New Testament. Why? Because baptism itself, in fact, the word baptism is really not a word of English. It is a transliteration from the Greek. A transliteration is just where they take the word and bring it directly over and anglicize it and make it an English word. Baptizo means to immerse, to dip, to plunge. That's what the word means. That's its inherent meaning. And when we are dipped or plunged, or as Peter said, we are baptized in the name of Jesus, Paul then argues in Romans 6 that we are baptized into the death of Christ. You see, when Jesus died, He was buried in the heart of the earth. They didn't just sprinkle a bit of dirt upon Him. They put Him in the heart of the earth in the tomb. And when we are baptized, Paul says that we die to our sins, we are buried with Him in the waters of baptism, and there we contact the blood of Jesus, and then we rise to walk in newness of life. There is no other form of baptism that will fit that requirement other than immersion. And immersion was certainly what the early church did and practiced. In fact, in Acts 8, when the Ethiopian was baptized, Philip and he went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. Why? Because it was a picture of the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But not only a picture, it was the answer of a good conscience. It was the fulfillment of Christ's commands, demonstrating one's saving faith. In other words, faith without baptism is worthless. One must believe. That's where it starts. But faith that is not active is no faith at all, James tells us. The sixth thing was a correct, correct observance of the Lord's Supper. Now, we don't have time this morning, and I won't take the time to try to get into all of the nuances of the Lord's Supper. But, you know, one of the great things that began to be changed about the church very quickly, besides the structure and leadership of the church, and also baptism, was the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper began to be attached with all kinds of mysticism, and all kinds of Aristotelian logic and things that took it away from its memorial purpose, whereby we remember Jesus and put it over into some kind of a mystical, almost Gnostic view. Well, you know, the correct observance of the Lord's Supper is something that is important on a variety of levels. The Apostle Paul looked at the Corinth church in 1 Corinthians 11, and they had taken the Lord's Supper and they had somehow mixed it with a physical meal, maybe what scholars call the agape feast or the love feast. It's hard to really say for sure. But they had changed the meaning and the method of the Lord's Supper. 
You know, we still find that all the time today. We find churches, we find congregations that have changed the biblical pattern of the Lord's Supper. And you know, the churches of Christ, uh, we, we demand that we go back to the pattern. We demand that we go back to the Lord's Supper as Paul instituted it and previous to that as Jesus himself gave it. In fact, when Corinth was having trouble understanding the meaning and the method of, of the Lord's Supper, Paul says, I have received of the Lord the same things I'm now giving you, and then he takes us all the way back to the night that Jesus was betrayed. He says, what did Jesus do? Here's what he did. He took one loaf, representing his one physical body and his one spiritual body. He took the fruit of the vine in, contained in a cup, which represented the blood that would be shed for the new covenant, the single one new covenant. It's so simple, it becomes complex to those who, I think, overthink it. And yet that was one of the major doctrines of the New Testament. Not only how they did it, but that they did it. Acts 20, verse 7, they continued and they met on the Lord's Day. Acts 27, the disciples came together to break bread. And so that was a non-negotiable apostolic doctrine. In fact, Acts 2, 42 says, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, teaching, fellowship, and the breaking of bread. That's just a shorthand way of saying the Lord's Supper. Now one of the issues of the first century, which not that we necessarily directly have to worry so much about today, but yet there are principles and things we need to know, is that of the regulation of spiritual gifts. For example, in Corinth, one of the big problems in Corinth was that God had given, through the laying on of the apostles' hands, according to Acts 8, spiritual gifts. Now these spiritual gifts, including gifts of healing, they included prophecy, they included gifts of faith and other things that benefited the immature church till the time that God's Word could be fully disseminated, fully written, and of course bring them then to a point of maturity. But now these gifts began to be used as a way to elevate one person over another. They began to argue and bicker. I've got the gift of tongues. Not in an eye, I've got the gift of prophecy. And some who thought they had the gift of tongues thought they had a better gift than another who had another gift. And Paul writes and he says, listen, that's not the purpose of spiritual gifts. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, a very interesting chapter, and I want you to kind of think about this, take this with you. 1 Corinthians 14 is the apostles' regulation of spiritual gifts. But he does that within the broader context of the regulation of the assembly. Now, of course, there is indeed room in various cultures to perhaps assemble in different ways. You know, some of us meet in buildings, some of us meet under trees overseas. But nonetheless, the basic order and the basic components of one man speaking at a time, women remaining silent, all things being done to edification, all of those principles, all together in one place, all come from 1 Corinthians, the 14th chapter. And all of that was given in the broader context of the regulation of spiritual gifts. Now today, I believe that Paul has made it very clear in 1 Corinthians 13 that those gifts have passed away. They were, as it were, scaffolding in the building of the church of Christ. 
But once that church was fully established and built through the apostles' doctrine, that scaffolding was removed. And so we today do not directly have the spiritual gifts of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. But Paul regulated them because they were creating division in the church. And we might draw as we hurry on the idea from this that when there is division in the church, the way we solve that is not by splitting up and dividing. But we solve that by coming together over and with and through God's revealed Word in the Scriptures. Number nine, one of the things that the early church struggled with, and we still struggle with this today, is gender roles in the church. This was one of the things that the apostles, both Peter and Paul especially, Paul especially, taught much on the regulation of men and women's role. Now, I was speaking with uh, Matt yesterday, we had coffee together, and we went back and talked about this just a little bit. But you know, this issue, this conflict between men and women, and uh, again, this could be a series that would last a lifetime, but you know, this conflict that men and women have goes all the way back to the garden. You know, what you really have in the Garden of Eden is you have Adam relinquishing his role as leader. And he lets Eve step forward, and she steps out of her role as the helper, and she takes the headship and reaches for the apple. And that really created then the, the problem and demonstrates the problem that men and women even have today. Well, these gender roles and how they are to fit both in the church and in the home were something that the apostles addressed. And so then, for example, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul speaks of the head of the home and the head of the woman being the man. Now Christ is the head of the church, but it's not an abusive head. It's a loving, leading, guiding head. And that's what the husband is to be as well. And of course he speaks about the headship issue in 1 Corinthians 11 and speaks of the hair, the long hair as being that which symbolizes a woman's submission, a voluntary placement by the way, under her husband's leadership. And of course that spins off then into even the roles in the first century church that were problematic. In the assembly, 1 Corinthians 14 again, who is to take the leading role? The men. Why? Paul says because it was Adam that was first formed and then Eve. Well we could go on long about that, but let me just notice a couple more things very quickly. The bodily resurrection was indeed a non-negotiable. We've already really talked about that, but you know the bodily resurrection has so many implications. We mo noted that the bodily resurrection of Jesus in, uh, is important because had Jesus not died and rose again, we would not have His sacrificial death and of course His sitting now at the right hand of the throne of God. But beyond that, there will be a bodily resurrection of all of us. Now it is not yet appeared we will be, but John says we will be like Him when we see Him. And I don't know that it really makes a lot of difference to get caught up in a lot of argument about what that physical body or lack thereof is going to be. We are going to have a spiritual body, but there will be a body. And we are going to be resurrected on that day. In fact, John 5, Jesus says, Marvel not, for the hour comes in which all that are in the tomb shall hear His voice and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of judgment. You see, there will be a physical resurrection. And that resurrection then says two things. 
Number one, it demonstrates that it does matter what we do with our bodies here in this life. Not like the Gnostics who said, oh, it doesn't matter. Really, spirit and flesh, flesh is evil anyway. No, it does matter what we do in our bodies. And that's the reason Paul, for example, over and over cautioned the Gentile converts to live as Christ and not live as Gentiles. But it also demonstrates that there is an eternal reward at the end of time. We will arise, we will stand before God in judgment, and the bodily resurrection cannot be separated from that final judgment teaching that Paul, for example, especially taught in the books of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And so then the bodily resurrection was a non-negotiable. I guess I'm out of numbers here because I don't know what number this is now. I thought I had 10 and I thought I was on 6, but now I'm on about 4, so I don't know. But nonetheless, I'm not a man of numbers. Freedom from the law of Moses. And let me just briefly recap this and then we'll close. Um, and one more point too beyond this. Now I'm sounding like Glenn, don't I? Uh-huh. I've heard that Glenn will do that. I've heard that Glenn will have one more conclusion. Well, I've got two or three conclusions this morning too. I miss Glenn. Wish he was here. But freedom from the law of Moses. Now, you know, that was one thing that struggled, the early church struggled with. Because there were many Christians who had been baptized that wanted to, because of persecution, for example, go back to the law. That was their old roots. They wanted to go back. Well, we live under a new covenant. We live under a new era. And while the law was great, in fact, Paul says it was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, it was something that was to be put aside, like a garment. And so then, the early church did not find their justification in the law, in animal sacrifices, in visits to the temple, but through Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ. Finally, morality issues, of course, that as the Gentiles left paganism. Now, you know, today, when someone is uh, converted, and we're not converting people like we used to for a variety of reasons, but when someone is converted today, they are leaving sometimes paganism. Now, of course, paganism doesn't mean that they're grossly immoral, but sometimes it is included in that category. The Gentiles of Paul's day were very immoral sexually. They were immoral in other ways. And so Paul speaks of sanctification and honor over and over in his epistles to those Gentile churches. Corinth, for example and to, of course, Colossians and Ephesians and others of those passages in which he speaks of how we are separate from the world and we have come out of paganism. I'll leave you with one thought this morning, and that is this. You know, many times in the church we are interested in happiness. But, you know, one of the things that I think we all must keep in mind, preachers especially, but others also, is that God is not nearly as concerned about our happiness as He is our holiness. God said, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And that was a non-negotiable as well of the first century church. The holiness, the putting God first in their lives. Well, those are the thoughts this morning. And there are many other things that are either part of these categories and or perhaps separate categories in and of themselves that could be mentioned. But the point being is that there were things that were non-negotiables and there must be non-negotiables for us today in returning to the New Testament pattern.
Those are the thoughts this morning. If you're here and you're not a Christian, would you be willing to take the steps that place you into Christ, hearing the gospel, believing and repenting of your sins, confessing Jesus as the Son of God, and then having your sins washed away in baptism. This morning, if you've not taken those steps, we'd be delighted to assist you if you have. We'd be happy to assist you in any other way while we stand and while we sing.